If you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a, a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who is a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For who could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How, how can someone be born again when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that they may, be, they may see plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is today's text. This is God's word. Allow me to pray. Lord, if we were to take this text um, seriously, it says that there's some things that we just cannot understand or maybe cannot see unless you reveal them to us. And I ask God for that sort of revelation today. By the power of your spirit, like wind, it's mysterious. It can come in and open the eyes of someone. We can see its effects and the way that our hearts are illuminated, the ways our lives are changed. But, it's, Lord, it's pretty much of a mystery. I, I, I can't even explain it. So I, I ask God now, by the power of your spirit, that you'd blow through this church today and open our eyes. Um, that you would open our hearts, that we'd be able to see what's going on here in this text. And by it, Believe in you, Christ, and follow you. I submit my entire outline to you, my thoughts to you, whatever. I know that there are a lot of things I can't do, especially I cannot speak to people's hearts and open their hearts. Only you can do that. So, Lord, I just submit all this to you and say, may your will be done. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I didn't, uh, I didn't grow up in church. Um, I didn't grow up... I didn't really go to church, but maybe a handful of times between the time I was, uh, I was young until maybe a junior in high school. I remember very vividly going to church one time as a kid, going to a Catholic church, and it was way, way, way over my head. Um, I remember just sitting there and just being like, I, I don't understand what's going on. This is all really, really insane. Though, if I walked in today, and I do, I, I appreciate it. 
But then I also remember as an adolescent going into a super, super Pentecostal church, and I was scared to death. I remember that. <laughs> and I probably appreciate it now going into those. I, but I, I went a handful of times as an adolescent, and, uh, and when I entered high school, my junior year, I started going to Sunday morning church a few times here and there as a junior in high school with a friend. But the two encounters that I had with God that eventually led me to placing my faith and trust in Christ happened at night. The first night was an evening Bible study. I remember getting a call from a friend, and my friend said, would you want to go to church? And I'm like, it's Wednesday. <laughs> He's like, yeah, it's called Wednesday night home group or Wednesday night Bible study. I'm like, that's, that's a, you guys are a little obsessive. That's a little too much. Like, I went Sunday. Don't call me until Saturday. Um, <laughs> He's like, no, no, and, and so this is, I mean, this is so shameful. I, 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 I'm not proud of this, but it's, it's the truth. He's like, no, no, what we're going to go do is um, tell your parents we're going to church, but we'll go and, and do drugs beforehand and then go to church. <laughs> so it's, it's true. It's sad. I hate it. It's true. Part of my story. And I'm like, that's actually genius. So um, I told my mom and dad, I'm going to church. And they're like, that's excessive. I'm like, I know. And, but I did. And so... Um, Went that night, and it was that evening at that Bible study that I made a commitment to Christ. And I don't, to be honest, I don't think, I, I didn't know what I was really getting into. It could have been the drugs. I don't know, but it was, I didn't know what I was getting into. But I do believe, I do believe that, um, I don't discount it. How about that? I don't discount that night and what happened. It was like a first, maybe a first step. A few months later, I got expelled from school for selling said drugs at school. And um, that night, at night, I'm at home. And I'm contemplating the implications of my young life falling apart, what it means uh, to have something like what happened on my record when I was a young person, uh, being expelled from school, getting uh, like really cut off and losing all my friends. And that happened that night. I had opened a Bible for the very, very first time I've ever opened a Bible by myself. And I heard God speak to me and Jesus said to follow him. And I got rid of everything, all my paraphernalia, all my stuff and followed Christ. Christ saved me. It was incredible. Like, God saved me. Praise God. Now, why do I tell you that it was at night? Because it was at night. (laughs) But also, because I was coming out of darkness. I was coming out of the night and stepping into the light, and it, it took two nights for me, two stages of stepping out of darkness into the light. John 3, 1 and 2. Now there was a man, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. Why does John say that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night? Because it was night. But also, because John loves to play with light and dark metaphor. He does this in the opening sentence of his prologue. John 1. For in him, Christ, was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. And light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light and darkness, day and night. John loves playing with these polarities. At the end of the gospel, when Jesus, the light of the world, is betrayed, he is betrayed by a man named Judas. And after he's betrayed, Jesus dismisses Judas out of the room. And this is how John pens it. This is how John writes. John 13, 30. As soon as Judas had taken, Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. Why? 
because it was night, but also because Judas was turning away from the light of the world and stepping into the deepest, darkest, and most lost place anyone has ever known. He stepped into the night. He turned his back on the light of the world and stepped into the night. Light and dark, day and night. I think that's what's going on here with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council, meaning he was part of a religious elite group of 70 men, respected in the community, respected because of his religious commitment and his discipline. And this group of 70 men, called the Sanhedrin, ruled the country under the Roman government. He was called a part of the ruling council. This man was political. He was religious, and he was powerful. In verse 10, Jesus also says that he's Israel's teacher. And this is a title. He's like, you're Israel's teacher, meaning he was the teacher of Israel. He was the one that all of Israel went to when they had questions about the Jewish scriptures. He is the teacher. And though Nicodemus had a pedigree and an education and a seat of power and influence, he was still in the dark. That's what John is telling us. That is John's pointing out. This man who has all these credentials, who is this educated and this politically connected and this powerful and this well-to-do, this man was still in the dark and he came to Jesus at night. But even though he went to Jesus at night, here's the play on it. What John is saying is he went to Jesus. He went to Jesus who was the light of the world. He went to Jesus for illumination. However, We'll see in our text, the interaction didn't go all that well. In this conversation, we see what kind of darkness Nicodemus was in. First, we see Nicodemus was in the dark about this phrase, this phrase, born again. We've, you might, might have heard this phrase if you've been around the church for any amount of time, or it's just like this common phrase that people say, are you born again, meaning are you a Christian? That's what we take it to mean. Jesus basically coined this phrase or created this phrase, made up this phrase here. It's not found in the Jewish Old Testament. Jesus is saying, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus was in the dark about what it meant to be born again. John 2, 2, Nicodemus approaches Jesus and compliments him. Did you notice that? Rabbi, it says, verse 2, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Now, that, that's a strange we. Like, he's not with anyone. He walks up to Jesus like, hey, we know. And Jesus like, who? Like, who's the we? There's this like collective we. He says, we know that your teacher has come from God. No one could perform the signs. Now, if you remember from last week, you have, to, you have to remember that word. That's an important word. No one can perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And then Jesus replies in verse 3, very truly I tell you. Now you're supposed to contrast verse 2 and verse 3. The rabbi, uh, this, this, this Jewish leader, this rabbi himself, Nicodemus, walks up to Jesus and says, teacher, we know. We know, and Jesus says, let me tell you the truth. You think you know something. Let me tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Remember last week we said, we talked about that word sign. This is important to connect these two verses, sign. This is what we said, it's on the screen. A sign is this, a significant, that's cute, right? Significant displays of power that point beyond themselves. A sign points beyond themselves to, a, to the deeper realities that can be perceived with the eyes of faith. So a sign, that's the def, working definition of sign in John's gospel. Remember last week's sign, Jesus was turning water 
into wine. That was a sign. And that sign pointed beyond itself to the reality that Jesus was bringing about a messianic feast. He was inaugurating the messianic rule and reign of God inside the world as we know it. And the old was being replaced with the new. Remember we talked about that? That's a sign. Now, Nicodemus shows up and says, now if you're catching the flow, if you know what sign means, Nicodemus shows up and says to Jesus, we know who you are. He goes to Jesus and he says, we know who you are. And the reason why we know who you are is we've seen the signs that you've been doing. And what we've determined from your signs is that you're, pre- you're a pretty darn good teacher. And, I th- and we think that God is with you. Do you see what, what he did there? He's like, I think we've discerned the signs. And what we discern from looking at your life is that we think you're a good teacher. We think you're, you're pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm the teacher, but you're like, I want to say, well done. You're a good teacher. Now, Jesus, the good teacher, this, this is how some people see Jesus. You might be here today, and you're like, well, I'm not really into the religion thing, but I agree that Jesus was a good teacher. And a good teacher who has come up with some good things and has some good things to say about humanity and some good things to say about God. Now, that's still very popular today. Jesus replies this. Jesus has a way of, like, getting to the heart, like getting to the vulnerable part really easy. Um, I remember there was a, there was a guy... Uh, in my hometown growing up. He, he, he was like a wrestler, and he comes from a whole family of wrestlers, and so he like breeded wrestlers. And, um, and you know how when you shake someone's hand, a, guy, a, a guy's hand, and you can like, you shake their hand, and you can like touch a part of their body, like they, they kind of, they always like flex a little bit. I'm, I'm sorry, guys, if I'm like letting out your secrets, but like those flex, like arm, like oh, a little flex, you know, whatever. But these guys would like, when they grabbed your hand, they would like hit your part of your body you couldn't flex, like your love handle. Like, you can flex pretty much any part of your body except for that. And you're like, ah, oh. And you just feel (laughs) deflated. Like, completely deflated. Shake, and then like a love handle slap. And you're like, oh, yes, I know. Whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. You know that sort of thing? Um, That is the, that's like the place that Jesus, just, Jesus knows how to get to. Like, they're saying all kinds of stuff. And Jesus goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And he just kind of goes for that, like, vulnerable love handle slap. And Nicodemus is just like, what? Nicodemus comes to Jesus like, you're a good teacher. He's like, you, you, you think you see signs. You think you know who I am. You can't even understand who I am unless you're born again. You can't perceive them. You can't see the signs. You can't see what I'm doing. You can't even see what I am or who I am unless you are born again. Now, he uses this word born again, and Nicodemus is like, born again. Now, this born again, this word again, can be translated again, as in all over. It can be translated as above. Some of your footnotes in your Bible have a footnote and says, or from above at the bottom. This Greek word can mean again from above or from top to bottom. It can mean that. So Nicodemus, when Jesus says, if you're born again, Nicodemus interprets, and he, or he thinks he knows what Jesus is talking about. He interprets it not born from above, he interprets it as born again or all over again. Look at verse 4. How can someone be born when they are old? He obviously has translated this, 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 this word or interpreted this word that Jesus uses as born all over again. Nicodemus asks in a snarky way. I mean, he's a teacher. He's a teacher of teachers. He knows a metaphor when he hears one. 
So he's just being kind of a jerk. He's like, surely they cannot enter a second time in their mother's womb to be born. And But this is the question, though. How do we start? How do we get a new start? How do we get a fresh start? How can we start a li- life all over again? With like all the experience that we have now, with the education that we have now, with the experience that we have now, how can we get a do-over with all that we know now? How are we born again when we're old? And we know that we can't climb back into our mother's womb. That's disgusting. And it's just not, not, it's not what Jesus was saying. I mean, we know that. We know that that's not what Jesus means. And Nicodemus did too. Actually, Jesus says that sort of rebirth would do nothing for you. Jesus is like, if you actually had to do life over again, if somehow you could, with everything you know now, climb back in your mother's womb and be born all over again, that would do nothing for you. Turning over a new leaf does nothing for you because you're still working with the same leaf or you're still working at least with the same tree. A fresh start won't do because you're still working with the same parts. If you were doing your life over again, it would still be you doing your life over again. It doesn't work. Jesus is like, you're, if you, if, even if you could climb back into your mother's womb and be born all over again, you still have a huge problem, and that problem is you. You're still working with the same stuff. So Jesus gives this beautiful explanation of what it means to be born again. Listen, you can get lost in a language, but it's actually quite simple if you get it. So listen carefully. Jesus answered, verse 5, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, meaning he's referring to something in the Jewish Bible. So he's like, teacher, Jewish teacher, you should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind, and this is a plan words, the word wind is the same word for spirit, pneuma. Same Greek word. Same, also same Hebrew word. Same word. The wind or the spirit blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is any, everyone born of the wind or spirit. It's a pun. It's a play on words. Now, Jesus kind of mixes metaphors here, so I admit it's complex and confusing at first. But when you connect the dots, it's clear what Jesus is saying here. Let's parallel on the screen verses 3 and verses 5 so you see this. Because what Jesus is saying is the same thing. Look at it. Verse 3 says this, very truly I tell you. Verse 5 says, very truly I tell you. Verse 3 says, no one can see. Verse 5 says, no one can enter. It's the same difference. You can't see it, perceive it, or enter it. What? The kingdom of God. Verse 5, the kingdom of God. Verse 3, unless. Verse 5, unless. Verse 3, they, they are, are, born, born. See it all connecting? I'm slowing it down. I want you to get it. Look at the, the next word. Again. Of water and spirit. What Jesus is doing is like being born again is the same thing, but a different metaphor of being born of water and spirit. So Jesus is saying the same thing, but using a different metaphor. A metaphor that Nicodemus, a Jewish scholar, would understand. He would understand this metaphor. So we don't have born again language in the Old Testament. You cannot find the words born again in the Old Testament. So Nicodemus would have been kind of confused with that. How, what do you mean born again? So what Jesus does is he connects that born again to language he would have understood. Water and spirit. That is Jewish language. That is Old Testament language. And Nicodemus, who would have known the Old Testament by heart, would or should have picked up on this. Now where does water and spirit come up in several places? But there's one place that's key. It's in Ezekiel chapter 36. But first let me go to Genesis. 
okay? Starts shalom, right? It starts with peace, Genesis 1 and 2. Everything has order, creation, beauty, everything. Um, humanity rebels. They say, we're going to live life our own way. Uh, if you ever remember well, those Jesus Project videos, it's man giving God the middle finger. We're going to do what we want to do. We don't want to be ruled by you, okay? So humanity and God is broken apart. There's, there's a vandalism of the shalom of God. There's a brokenness that enters the world, a schism that happens in the world. Rebellious and unclean humanity. Now God has... God is on now a mission to purify, cleanse us, bring us back into his presence. But how can he do that with sinful humanity who is unclean? He did that through the sacrificial system that was set up um, in the Old Testament. But then that sacrificial system had a forward pointingness. I don't know if that's a word, but whatever, in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was a prophet who saw a day coming when God would get rid of like the old covenant and get rid of the sacrificial system and then remake our hearts. And he says this, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 29. Ezekiel says in a prophecy, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and, will, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. Jesus is defining being born again by being born of water and spirit. From Ezekiel's language, that means being born again is being cleansed by God Moral cleansing. Be, be given, it's, it's receiving a new heart. Not a renewed heart necessarily, but a brand new heart. A brand new nature from above. Not turning over a new leaf, not working with the same parts. A new heart. Your heart of stone gets removed and a heart of flesh gets put in its place. God's spirit is being put in us to bring about life and the power of God and the life of God to transform us. That water and spirit mean being born again. Jesus explains this further. He says this, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus is saying kind produces kind. Dogs produce dogs, cats generate cats, flesh gives birth to flesh. Now the question is, how in the world do you take a human whose heart, no matter how sweet and caring it seems to be, a human heart and a human life and connect this human heart that's stuck in the earth and stuck in the ground. How do you connect this human life with the life of God? How do you take this human life, this flesh life, and connect it with the very life of God? And at this point, there have been a plethora of answers. You can say religion is how we do it. Or sincerity. We have to be sincere about about our faith, or it's good works, or it's meditation, or self-denial, or recycling, that's the thing, or sex. Now, if you don't think sex is worship, just wait until next week in chapter four. How do we connect with the life of God? We have tried every single way there is under the sun, but here's the problem. Like produces like. Flesh produces flesh. The, you cannot, as a fleshy person, connect with the life of God. You can't get there by moral performance. You can't get there by your pedigree, by what family you're born into. 
You can't get there by your education. You can't get there by your contribution to society. You can't get there by your religious commitment. You can't get there. You need a rebirth by the Spirit of God. You need God from above to pour his spirit in you and renew your life. You cannot do it by yourself. It's an act of God that Ezekiel talked about that cleanses you, that fills you with the power from God. That's what changes you. That's what transforms you. And what this means, if you were here last week, is that you, you, what Jesus is saying here, is that you are actually like the water that's turned into wine. That's you. He takes water and he turns it into a different nature. He transforms it into something brand new, something completely different. The old is replaced with the new. You become the new wine. You become that water and a change in nature to wine. And you know how in John 2, this is last week, you know how no one knew that Jesus did it? All you can do was taste it. Like he didn't say, hey guys, I'm going to turn water into wine now so everybody watch. He's like, hey, just take those things and, and then fill those cups like, you want me to take this water and fill their cup? Yeah, just take the water and fill the cups. And only the servants knew. And people tasted it and they saw it. They, they knew the, 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 the miracle of God and its effects. They're like, well, this is different. I can taste this is different. This isn't water. This isn't the wine you even brought out at the beginning. This is something completely different. What Jesus is saying here is that you get a new nature and your new nature is seen in the effects that it brings. Wind blows You can hear it. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. It's mysterious, but you see its effects. So is everyone born of the spirit or the wind. It's mysterious. I don't understand it, but it's a rebirth that's seen in its effects. When I was born again, my life changed. When you're born again, you get a new life. Like, it's seen in the effects. You start thinking and acting different. The spirit of God activates things in you that you never had there before. Nicodemus was in the dark about how this all takes place. He says this. This is the last thing I think Nicodemus says. He says, how can this be? He is just now, his mind is blown. He's like, what are you saying? How can this be? This poor guy's like educated little head was spinning. (laughs) Like how do you get new birth? How are you cleansed by God and given a new heart? I thought I was doing all of that. I'm the teacher of Israel. I'm the most religious guy that you'll ever meet, Jesus. How in the world do I get a new life if I haven't already accomplished it by now? Notice how many times Nicodemus says can and cannot. He says, no one can perform the signs you're doing unless. How can someone be born again when they're old? They cannot enter a second time. How can this be? Nicodemus is completely fixated on what he thinks is humanly possible. What humans can or cannot do what humans can or cannot be done, what, what can or cannot be done to humanity. He's focused entirely on the things that are human possibilities or human capabilities. Guys, we create algorithms and manage disasters and outcomes. In this room, we create things that, quote unquote, change the world. The Enlightenment taught us that human progress is the answer. Postmodernism has showed us, showed us that the means of progress is oftentimes the problem. I was at a lecture with Peter Till last year in North Beach, and he pointed out, he was in a, a conversation or debate with N.T. Wright, and he pointed out 
that when it was his turn to like do opening comments, he pointed out how if you follow culture and what culture is saying about technology through media or through movies and such, you will see that we don't really have that much hope in technology. That's, what he, he, that's how he opened up. He said, actually, if you watch movies, technology is always the problem in movies. The things we create threaten to destroy us over. That was not like that in like the, the 60s, the 70s. But today, every disaster movie is something technology turned against us. I, I know that you guys, and I, that was really strange. I was like, wow, that was, that's pretty weird insight. That's true. I don't know. I know that a lot of you guys solve problems, and that's amazing. And there are, there are things that we do in this room and how you guys work that are actually changing the world. But here, can I just connect you to, to the earth for a second? There are some things that are outside of your control. There are some things that you cannot do. There are some things that only God can do. There are some things that you cannot do, no matter what you create. To make it completely clear to Nicodemus, Jesus is saying there are some things, Nicodemus, that you cannot do, that human progress cannot accomplish, that you can and cannot do. You can't do it. And to make it crystal clear to Nicodemus, it's not crystal clear, crystal clear to us. We have no idea what he's talking about unless we read the Old Testament. To, to make it crystal clear to him, he says this. Just to, you know, like to make it clear. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. And you're like, oh, thanks. That clears it up. That makes sense. Thank you for that. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this is, this is a lob pitch for Nicodemus. This is an easy one. He should have got this one, right? Um, we don't, but it's, it's from the, numbers, uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 21. I'm going to read it to you so that you know I'm not lying. So I'm just going to read it to you straight out of the Bible. So you're like, he's making that up. It's in the Bible. Verse 4. It's on the screen. Or you can write it down in your notes, whatever. 21, verse 4. They traveled, they, the children of Israel, after they were delivered from Egypt, traveled, excuse me, from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea. To go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. Sounds like people. They spoke out against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food that you're serving us. We hate God. We hate you. We hate everything. That's humanity. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. And, and they bit the people. And many Israelites died. It's actually sad. I don't know why you're laughing. Um, the people came to Moses and said, okay, oh, we got it. We sinned. We spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on the pole. And when anyone was bitten by the snake, they looked at the bronze snake and they lived. End of story. That's it. That's it right there. Okay, this story is so cool. Okay, so what do we, okay, we got bit by this venomous snake. We have poison running through our bodies. We're going to die. What do we do? Um, just look at this pole. Wait, what? Like that's it, some Indiana Jones stuff. Like that's not, like look at this. I made a snake. Look at this. Look, look up. Look at this pole. And live. Wait, just look. Yeah, just look. I mean, you mean look and then do religious stuff? No, just look. No, you mean look and then be good? No, just look. You mean look and like fast and then pray? 
and then pay, right? No, just, just look. Look and live. You, you can't just look. That's way too easy. There has to be more than that. See, the only way into new life, the only way to be born again, is not by trying to clean up your life, trying to do all the right things, trying to make yourself acceptable to God. Gosh, that happens more times than I can even tell you. That's probably happening all over this room for the last years. I'm trying to clean my life up, and then I'll give my life to God. The only way to be born again is by receiving the life of God through his provision, through what he's provided, no matter how strange it is. This is so strange. A pole and a snake, that's strange. But you said just as that snake, and they looked on that and lived, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So what do we look at? Jesus lifted up. When was Jesus lifted up? When would the Son of Man, that's a very common phrase Jesus calls himself, when would the Son of Man be lifted up? On the cross? A pole made of wood, nailed there? I mean, how strange. Why would Jesus die on the cross? Well, the two most beautiful verses in the entire Bible, probably. Why would Jesus die on a cross? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In verse 16, we find the motivation for everything that God is doing in Jesus. What is the motivation? Why is Jesus even there? I mean, what's strange here is if Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, it implies that Jesus had to step into the night himself. Why would Jesus be there? Why did Jesus step into the darkness of our existence? And the answer is, in verse 16, it's because of love. And here's the irony. The word for world, for God so loved the world, that word for world in Greek is not the trees and the waterfalls and the northern lights. It's not that world. It's the word that speaks of humanity, you and me, who grumble and complain and hate God and rebel against God and say, God, I'm so sick of your ways. I can't, you're not, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm educated. I'm smart. I know what's better for my life than you do. I will do what I want to do. That word world is that word. It's sinful, rebellious humanity who in a sense hates God and wants their own way and not God's way. God so loved the rebellious world. God so loved the rebellious world, a world that, that, that if it was left to them would kill God. But actually, that's exactly what we did, didn't we? If it was left up, we would kill him. But God, who was rich in mercy, so loved the world that he gave, that he the other translation for that word is sent. Now, you have to pardon me. I warned you. In the movie Interstellar, my favorite scene is this dialogue between Matthew McConaughey's character, Cooper, and Anne Hathaway's character, Brand, as they are contemplating which planet to land on to save the human race. And the options are a planet where a a, a scientist named Dr. Mann, he's a scientist, in Anne Hathaway's own words, is the best of us. Dr. Mann. You get it? The best that man has to offer. Dr. Mann. And there's another guy who's on another planet, and his name was Edmund. And Anne's character wants to go to Edmund's planet. Matthew says, you're not thinking clearly. 
You're not weighing the, you're not using facts. The facts tell us Dr. Mann is the best option. Tell them, and he's mad, he's, and she's like, no, we're going to Edmund's Planet. We should go to Edmund. He goes, no, tell them why you want to go to Edmund's Planet. He goes, tell them that you love Edmund. That's why you want to go there. Your heart's telling you to go there. And you can't use love. Love is not science. Then Anne goes into this soliloquy on love. And I'm just going to give you the dialogue, okay? We found this buried deep in the recesses of, of Reddit. So here it is. <laughs> Don't tell anyone we have this, but here it is. So Cooper says, you're a scientist, Brandon. I mean, think, think with your head, you're a scientist. And Brandon says, I am. So listen to me when I tell you that love isn't something we invented. It's observable, powerful. Why shouldn't it, why shouldn't it mean anything? It means social utility, child rearing, social bonding. She replies, we love people who've died. There's no social utility in that. Maybe it means more, something we can't understand yet. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of higher dimensions that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen for a decade, who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should just trust that, even if we can't yet understand it. One of the subtext of the movie is the propulsion of love. How love keeps propelling everyone all over the universe. Love is propelling Anne Hathaway's character. Love is propelling Matthew McConaughey's character. Love is propelling Matthew's daughter's character. Pretty much everyone is propelled by love except for Dr. Mann who's propelled by love of self. By the way, it doesn't end well for him. (laughs) This is what John is saying. God so loved the world full of Dr. Mann's, bent on destroying the good that God created. A world full of darkness. A world in the deepest and darkest of nights. God so loved it, and his love propelled him toward it. His love propelled him towards the world. Towards this world that's bent on rebellion. You may have heard it said that God is so holy that nothing sinful can stand in his presence. That's part of the the holiness of God. But the whole truth of God's holiness is that because God is holy... He always goes after, his presence actually goes after where things are broken. So in Genesis 3, the whole world falls under the sway of the evil one, and God doesn't go, ooh, darn it, got to start over. He goes after it, and he walks with Adam and Eve, and he says, where are you? Why are you hiding? Whenever, whenever brokenness is there, God goes after it. So if you've heard it said, you're not good enough to stand in God's presence, here's the thing, that is true, but because of God's goodness and because of God's love, he has gone after us. His love has propelled him toward us. His love has come to us to restore what is broken, to renew us, to bring a new birth, new things. The things that are lost are found, the things that are dead are made alive, the things that are broken are mended. God so loved the world that he went after it to save it. He He saved it by taking what our sin and our rebellion deserves. By giving his life that we might have life. We don't clean up our life to bring it to him. We don't bring a perfect record. We don't bring an accomplished resume. We will bring only our hope and his provision for new life. That's all we bring. We look upon Jesus and believe. That's it. We look to him. And it might seem silly, and it might seem like, wait, you're just saying, I look to him and believe. Yes, you look to him 
and belief. That's what it takes. Last week, I closed with a like pastoral thought, and I just want to do one today. One bit of reflection before we move into a time of response. Did you notice how Nicodemus went to Jesus with this collective we? Um, we have perceived that you are we. Who is we? When we stand before Jesus, I know there's a ton of baggage. And we, us, could step to him and say, well, we, and we hide behind the we. We hide behind what we think our, what culture has said about Jesus. We've hid behind, like, when we went to university and we heard all the stuff against Christianity, and we hide behind some professor who said some elusive things some time ago, and you remember hearing it or something like that. We hide behind those things. We hide behind religiosity, and we think, well, my, my, I just grew up saying, if you, if you went to church, you were good. And we hide behind this we, this collective we, and what, if there's anything that Jesus exposes, like, what do you believe? And he causes us to step outside of this collective we. What do you believe? What are you going to do with what you've heard? What do you believe about Christ? And so my encouragement to you as we close is to answer that question. What do you believe? What are you going to do with what you've heard? And my, when I became a follower of Christ, I didn't have the sinner's prayer or like three things I had to say or whatever. It was seriously just as, it was just me just saying, in my own way, God, I'll follow you. That's what it was. I'm, I'm going to follow you. And I know the implications of that is turning from what, what has been killing me, turning from what has been causing my life hell, and turning to you. That's it. And so as we lead, if we lead in response now, I'm gonna, I want to ask you, I don't care if you're religious, if you're completely in rebellion, what you did last night, whatever. If you're listening now, make a decision. And there's only two. Perish or true, real, eternal life. That's it. And there didn't have to be fireworks, there didn't have to be anything. There just has to be this step towards Christ. I'll follow you. Let's pray. God, I ask that in our time of response right now, that we would truly respond to you Jesus, I thank you that your love has propelled you to go after us. We don't deserve it. We are bent on rebellion, and we know that. And we ask that you would save. God, I, I pray that you would save. That you would give new life. That today it could be said of people in this room I'm born again. I have life from above. I'm not a new leaf, I'm not trying harder anymore. New life, cleansing, moral cleansing. The life of God breathed in me. Save us, Lord. I, I, I believe that there's some people that need to be born again again. We need that life of God breathed in us. And that cleansing. Thank you that we can come to you. And your provision is the cross. Thank you for that, Lord, in Christ's name, amen.